In season one of the critically acclaimed Showtime television drama, and I hope you guys have checked this, Homeland, one of the main characters is a guy named Brody. Brody is suspected of being turned, uh, not turned like Walking Dead turned, but turned during his eight years as a prisoner of war from being a loyal U.S. Marine to an Al-Qaeda operative, posing a potential threat to his homeland. In episode two of season one, Brody moves from privacy to publicity, donning his uniform and standing in full view of a host of media and press. This alarmed CIA agent, Carrie Matthews, it's happening, she says. He's out there playing the hero card. Carrie's fear is that Brody's brazen move from privacy to publicity will actually blind the American public to his intentions, to what she thinks are his real motives, namely an attack against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. And I'm not going to give it up for you, but... You're going to have to watch Homeland to figure out if Carrie's suspicions of Brody are accurate. But we're using that this morning as we look into the scriptures because we're going to see that reality clearly depicted. People blind to what's right in front of their eyes. People blind to what's right in front of their eyes. So I invite you to go ahead and open in your Bible or in our app to Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. Again, that's Mark 10, 46. While you find your place, again, I just want to welcome those of you joining us for the first time uh, here this morning or through our City Church Evansville app or through our podcast. Again, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor. We're glad to have you. Uh, Currently, we're in a sermon series entitled, The Last Days of Jesus Christ, Making Our Way, and you guys may feel slow and sure, verse by verse through the second half of the Gospel of Mark. As a brief reminder, last week uh, we saw that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's on a journey, and he's followed not only by his 12 disciples, but also by a larger crowd. We read that the disciples were amazed and that the crowd was afraid. The disciples were amazed and the crowd was afraid. Then listen to what Jesus says. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's heavy. To which two of his closest disciples, I mean two of his dearest friends, men who have left their lives to be with Jesus, who have spent day in and day out going on three years with Jesus, two brothers named named James and John, they respond to him after hearing him say that, and here's what they say. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. How inappropriate. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus replies. Well, we want you to place us in positions of power on your right hand and on your left hand. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that Jesus takes their self-seeking understanding of power and turns it upside down. He completely implodes it. Jesus teaches that real power is service. In fact, he goes as far as saying what you'll find here in verse 43, since you've already found your spot just a couple verses prior. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while at this point it's still all just talk, 
In the weeks to come, we're going to see that Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. So, this morning we'll continue reading in verse 46. And what we're going to see is that James and John and the others who were following Jesus are going to have an opportunity to show to Jesus how much they understand what he just taught them. Namely, that uh, greatness is measured by service. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave to anyone, everyone, to all. And this opportunity will come about because of the request, the appeal of a blind man named Bartimaeus. So read with me starting at verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, I have to stop here. Did you guys see that? What I I just said is that James and John and the others were going to have a chance to show how much they understand Jesus' teaching, that greatness is serving or becoming a slave to everyone. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To which the disciples and the crowd reply, shut up. They failed miserably, quickly. For the followers of Jesus who are here this morning, how are you doing at implementing and applying the call and the teaching of Jesus? Be honest with yourself just for a second. Be self-aware. See yourself. If you're failing miserably at implementing the call of Jesus, you can find yourself in good company here, namely with some of the closest disciples of Jesus. Immediately after Jesus teaches his disciples that greatness is found in service, they turn around and tell the lowly, begging, blind man to shut up. Stop being a nuisance. Stop interrupting us. Stop imposing your pity and your poverty on our prosperity. Shut up. But why did they fail? I mean, What's really in their heart here? What's really at the heart of it? Maybe they're just dumb, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys know people uh, who think Christians are dumb, but a lot of my friends who aren't Christians think that Christians are dumb. Maybe they're dense, incapable of comprehending Jesus' teaching. Even if they were, what Jesus taught is plain and simple. It's not easy, but it's certainly clear. His teaching isn't hard to comprehend. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave of everyone. Again, I ask, why did they fail? What's at the heart of their failure to do what Jesus has just said? Maybe they were too busy. I don't know who that can, uh, I don't know who relates to that this morning. They had a lot on their plate. They're with Jesus after all, and he is dead set on making his way to Jerusalem where he said he's going to die, but the disciples thought that he was going to establish an earthly, political, geographic, nationalistic kingdom. So with that on their minds, right, they got a lot on their plate. And maybe it's like most of the guys that I know. And ladies, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Maybe it's like the man that you live with, like the man you wish you didn't live with sometimes, Maybe he's so focused on the bottom line, getting the job done, taking care of business and working overtime, so focused on completing the task that they don't have time for anything or anyone that distracts them from doing the deed, checking the box, mowing the lawn, fixing the problem. You know how it goes. I just made eyes with my wife, and I know she knows how it goes. I put her through that this morning. 
Or maybe, just maybe, the disciples were more like you and I than we care to imagine. My assessment is that they failed to act on Jesus' call to serve because they didn't like this guy. They didn't value him. What's to like after all? What's to value after all? He's blind. He's a beggar. He's brazen. His blindness in their cultural theological framework, by the way, would have been interpreted as divine judgment. The disciples would have thought that this blindness was a curse from God. And some of you may be wondering, well, where do you get that from? Uh, in, in, in John chapter 9, um, Jesus is asked by his disciples about another blind man. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was made blind? And Jesus' response is beautiful. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But that this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a beautiful response. Jesus says, no, no, no. You've got it all wrong. Your cultural theology is blinding you to Christ theology. God isn't punishing this man. His blindness isn't divine judgment for some obscure sin that he committed or the sin of his parents. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further And says this man's blindness is where God wants to display himself. The means by which God wants to make himself known. Jesus says his blindness isn't a divine sentence, but rather his blindness will be used as a divine showcase. The theology of their culture was blinding them to the theology of Christ. Which made me wonder about our own cultural theology. Cultural theology, right? Ideas picked up just in passing out in society as you're uh, rubbing elbows with people out and about. Picked up casually, passed on passively about who God is and how God operates. You know what these ideas sound like. I'll start this one and I want you guys to finish it, okay? You'll be familiar with this idea. I'll start it, you finish it. God helps those who, yeah, we get cultural theology. It's often so very destructive Guilt and shame-inducing, paralyzing, judgmental, legalistic, tit-for-tat, burdensome. It's exhausting. Whereas the theology of Christ, the thoughts and ideas and teachings about who God is and how God operates that we find on the lips of Jesus is true and good, beautiful, redemptive, life-giving, healthy, hopeful, graceful, liberating. And it is oh so counterintuitive. So we push back on it. The theology of Christ, not the theology of culture. Okay, let me, let me get back to, to the verse uh, 46 where we started. And I'm going to read the whole passage for today. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. 
Uh, There's a lot to consider here in these short seven verses. Honestly, much more than we can deal with now, but in the remaining time that we have together, I want to draw out three insights that we find here about blindness. Three insights about blindness. First, and you can write this down, it'll be on the screen as well. There is more than one blind person in this story. There's more than one blind person in this story. Obviously, we have one literally blind person here named in the text. His name is Bartimaeus. The more I spent time studying, I really became fond of Bartimaeus. I mean, I like this dude. He seems like my kind of guy. We don't know why he was blind. We don't know if he was born blind, if he became blind because of an accident, or if he gradually lost his sight maybe because of an infection. We don't know why he was blind, but what we do know about Bartimaeus, which is why I like him, is that he's smart. He's got some grit, some hustle. He's persistent. He knows what he wants, and he's not afraid of going after it and getting it. Admittedly, uh, that interpretation that I just shared with you uh, is in contrast to many of the commentators that I read. Many of them are smarter than me, so I admit maybe I'm completely off here. The commentators cast Bartimaeus as this pitiful, helpless soul, passively slouched on the side of the road, bothering passers-by for whatever they can offer him, and he loose change in their pocket. While I clearly read that he's a beggar, I get that, and I do see that he's sitting by the roadside, what else do we know about the time frame of what's going on here in the Gospel of Mark? We've talked about the time frame before. It's the week of Passover. That's the uh, time frame context of all of this. The largest of all Jewish celebrations. Think Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter all rolled into one. Historians have estimated that the Passover crowd swelled up to about 1.2 million people. Jews making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe Passover. 1.2 million people traveling, get this now, primarily by foot on the road that passes through Jericho, which is where Bartimaeus lives, on the way to Jerusalem. So, whether Bartimaeus wanted loose change or the recovery of his sight, he placed himself smack dab in the middle of this mass of people making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem right through his town. He's smart. He's a go-getter. He knows what he wants, and he's not afraid to go get it. He's got some hustle. Luke gives us another glimpse into Bartimaeus' intelligence, and we'll bring that up on the screen here with the detail that we find in Luke chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Did you see that? Bartimaeus is inquisitive. He's doing some market research, if you like. He's reading the crowd. Obviously, he senses something unique about this crowd. Something special. Maybe he could tell that the crowd was just larger than normal as he heard their feet shuffle by. Maybe his intuition allowed him to feel what we were reminded of at the beginning, that the disciples were amazed and the rest of the crowd was afraid. Maybe he could feel that. So as Luke tells us, Bartimaeus inquires. He takes initiative. He goes out on a limb and starts to talk to strangers. Even, and this is really important, even as a social outcast. Someone who is despised by society at large, seen as cursed by God. He talks to strangers. He asks questions until he gets the answer that he's looking for. I like Bartimaeus. 
And as Luke tells us again, when Bartimaeus finds out that it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by, he yells out. Why? Because somehow he's gathered enough information about who this Jesus really is that elicits a response. He's going to holler at him. He's going to yell at him. We talked in weeks past about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That happened about 10 miles away from Jericho. So maybe word travel. Maybe uh, Bartimaeus knows that Jesus can heal people with physical infirmity. So he, sh- he yells out. Are you guys starting to sense why I like Bartimaeus so much? That hustle, that grit, that, that initiative. I want you guys to see him that way. But as I said, there's more than just one blind person in this story. In fact, the text measures the more with the word many, which we see here in verse 48. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. There are many blind people here, blinded by power, blinded to people. Blinded by power, which blinds them to people. Again, the primary motivation that's magnetizing this swelling crowd to the Messiah is power. This power is what James and John were on about when they tried to tap into that right seat and that left seat that Jesus could offer them because they assumed that he was going to hop in a king's throne. He was going to reestablish the political, geographical rulership of King David. Power. They're blinded by it. And what part do poor, blind beggars have within this power dynamic? No part. None. They have no part. Blinded by power, blinded to people, specifically weak, powerless people. They don't matter, so we don't see them. As a matter of fact, he's becoming quite a nuisance. Someone please tell him to shut up. For those of you who have been told to shut up by followers of Jesus, I want you to hear this. I want you to see this in the Bible. For those of you who have been rebuked and shunned, belittled and hushed by followers of Jesus, see this here. While followers of Jesus may do their best at times to keep you from him, because for whatever reason they don't like you. They don't like how you vote. They don't like where you spend your time. They don't like the relationship that you're in. While followers of Jesus may do their best to keep you from him, Christ invites you continually to himself. He appeals, come to me. Be encouraged in that and don't miss the Christ because of encounters with foolish Christians. Don't miss the Christ because of encounters with foolish Christians. This embarrassing reality brings us to the second insight about blindness And this is for all of us. We're blind to our blindness. We're blind to our blindness. Jesus' disciples, the crowd, the onlookers, blinded by power, blinded by their prerogative, blinded by their presumptions, blinded by their plans, blinded to people, too blind to even see it. And this is all of us, isn't it? Can we find ourselves in this? We're blind to our blindness. We can't see what we can't see. We don't know what we don't know. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you find yourself absolutely opposed to the idea of believing in Jesus or having believed in Jesus for decades, whether you're poor or prosperous, a man or a woman, young or old, whether you're feeling the burn or you want to make America great again, we can all find ourselves here. We're blind to our blindness. The only way we can truly begin to see ourselves is in relationships, which is why in part relationships are so miserable and hard at times. Can I get an amen? 
It's the reason why so few of us seek deep, meaningful, authentic, vulnerable, long-term, long-suffering relationships. Many of us don't want to see ourselves. Or at least we don't want to see our entire selves. We don't want to see our whole selves, our complete selves. So we work real hard to project the best part of our person possible. And then we protect that projection, don't we? I assume it's always been like this. I'm not one of those all oh, back in my days kind of guys or the world was ever a better place. I don't really think that way. I assume it's always been like this, but man, social media is like the epicenter of this epidemic, this partial persona epidemic. You guys know who you're thinking about that you follow right now that fits that bill. You know who it is. This, there, there, there's billion dollar industries built to give people a place to project their partial persona, apps to post pictures primarily of ourselves, and not just any picture, right? The right picture at the right angle with the right lighting at the right moment. And then there's apps where you take those perfect pictures and you edit them to make them even more perfect of pictures. And then finally, that's the picture that we share to project the perfect presentation of our partial self. Look, I'm guilty of it too. All right, I know what it is. I'm not saying I don't do it. I'm just saying let's find ourselves here. Then we see one another in person, though, and it's like, (laughs) I was wondering what to say next, but you guys get what I'm saying there. You see each other in person, you're like, "Eh." okay. This reality uh, that we can only begin to truly see ourselves in relationships is part of my job, part of the reason why I champion and we champion city life groups the way that we do. City life groups are small groups of people who gather throughout the week uh, at various times. They meet in people's homes and different places to continue discussing and considering the sermons that we preach on Sundays. In fact, the incredible value of relationships is why we're expanding our city life group ministry to not only be the sermon-based group discussion, but also for affinity groups to become a part of our city life groups, people doing things that they care about, spending time with people who are like-minded, getting people into relationships so that they can see one another, so that they can be seen and begin to see themselves. If you're interested in joining a city life group or hosting one, there's an iPad in City Square, fill it out, hit submit, I'll get an email, and I'll email you this week about getting you connected into one of those groups. We're blind to our blindness. Which, being blind to our blindness, helps me understand the seeming incompatibility of the responses that we find given by the many. In verse 47, Bartimaeus cries out. In verse 48, the many rebuke him, which causes him to cry out all the more. Like, that's my man, he's got some grit. Then we read in verse 49 that Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they, the many, called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Do you get the contrast here? I know it's easy to to read the Bible and say, oh, this is the Bible. Everything is happy and good, and God is trying to tell me how to be the person that I should be. Do we see the humanity of these people who follow Jesus? Rebuke him. Shut up. Tell him to be quiet. Jesus says, hold on now. Call him. Hey, man, cheer on up. Rise to your feet. Come to Jesus. We're blind to our blindness. 
That's the only way that I can make sense of how incompatible this is from rebuking him to encouraging him and inviting him in a matter of seconds. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here that in all of their passion for power and their prerogative, that they were simply blind to what matters most, namely the human being made in God's image right in front of their eyes. That is what always matters most. I don't know what you think matters most in your life today, but if you think it matters more than the person right in front of you, you need to correct your, your lens. <clears throat> but don't, don't miss this, this picture of beautiful redemption that Jesus doesn't uh, roast them. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't rebuke the rebukers. Maybe because Jesus understands that we're blind to our blindness. So instead of rebuking the rebukers, he widens their view. He expands their lens so that they can see Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. The many were doing their best to keep the show moving forward. Jesus stopped. The many were doing everything they could to make the blind man mute as well. Jesus heard him. The many were criticizing Bartimaeus. Jesus called him. Do you see the contrast between the followers of Christ and the Christ? The many were pushing Bartimaeus away. Jesus drew him to himself. And obviously, we don't know the intention of the hearts behind their words, right, when they call him. We don't know what's in their hearts. But assuming that they were affected by this stark contrast in Jesus' valuation of this man, they changed their tune. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And this does happen, by the way, what we just saw happening here. Jesus using people to call out to their enemies to come to himself. This does happen. We saw it right there. Jesus certainly did that with a man named Saul of Tarsus, who stood by collecting coats and casting his approval as people stoned a Christian named Stephen to death. The Saul of Tarsus found himself in a relationship with Jesus, miraculously. And then oddly found himself in a relationship with people who used to be his enemies, Christians. And Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament and spending the remainder of his life seeking to get people who used to be his enemies into relationship with Jesus. Do you know that Jesus can do the same with you? And you're like, yeah, I get that, but I don't want to call my enemies to Jesus. Use you to call your enemies to himself. He's done it before, and I'm sure he's eager to do it again, which brings us to our third and final insight about blindness. <clears throat> Jesus is not blind. Jesus is not blind. There's a, a beautiful proverb that reads, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And for the guilt-ridden soul, you think that's like big brother trying to smack down on your fun. That's not what the scripture's on about at all. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Jesus, as identified by Bartimaeus, is the son of David. That's an that's a acknowledgment of his lineage. The anticipated Messiah, the King of Israel, God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Jesus is not blind. In this scene, Jesus saw Bartimaeus. Jesus knew that Bartimaeus knew who he was. In this scene, Jesus saw the many. And he saw what the many were doing. 
rebuking, hushing, ostracizing, criticizing, judging, othering, and oh so obviously not taking heed at all to his teaching about greatness. And that greatness is found in serving everyone. Jesus sees that those who believe in him and are following him need to experience this beautiful redemption of calling their enemies, inviting them to their Savior, and through them seeing that their enemy becomes their brother. Again, Jesus sees that this blind man can actually see who this Jesus of Nazareth truly is, the son of David. Jesus sees that. The son of David, the Savior, the one who Isaiah prophesied about, who Jesus claimed to be as he entered the temple and received a scroll that was passed to him. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus receives the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and get this, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls the scroll up and passes it back to the synagogue attendant, takes the seat. Jesus is so, like, chill, gangster a little bit. He says such a such an exclamation point of a statement, and sits down. Everyone turns and looks at him, and Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's who Jesus says he is. That's who Jesus is this morning. See, Jesus is not blind. Bartimaeus is called to Jesus, and in verse 50, you can hop back and follow along with me, throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Just a few um, observations as we approach our conclusion. Interestingly, we know that blind Bartimaeus was an outcast. And we also know that because of his blindness, he would have been poverty stricken, which is the reason that he was a beggar after all. He was poverty stricken. So he takes what could very very well be one of his only earthly possessions, his cloak, which he uses to cover himself up, to, to, to protect himself uh, against the elements, which he also lays out before him to collect whatever, whatever offerings people are throwing down at him. He takes that, throws it to the side, jumps to his feet, and blindly, just get that picture, blindly makes his way to Jesus, throwing his cloak aside. He jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. If you'll recall, uh, last week, just a few verses earlier, this is the same question that Jesus asks of John and James. When they say, hey man, we want you to do anything that we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. Can you place yourself in their positions, either in Bartimaeus' shoes or James and John's? shoes, that the God of the universe, the eternal sovereign Lord, essentially bows his knee, as it were, at your feet and asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Just imagine that. What do you want me to do for you? After shouting that he desired mercy, which I wonder if that got Jesus's attention, the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see I want to see. What's your answer to that question? What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Go, in verse 52, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Go is the same word, the same declarative that we find when Jesus has an intimate conversation with the woman who's caught in adultery. I believe that's in John 8. Go. Another person who needed mercy, this woman caught in adultery. Another person who needed mercy, and found it, found mercy for her sin 
in close proximity to Jesus. Can we reconcile that? Finding mercy for our sin right there with Jesus in close proximity to him? Or do you think that you need to take your sin and run and go deal with it yourself and then come back to God, then come back to Jesus, then come back to church? What we see is that there's a different picture here, finding mercy at the feet of Jesus. Go is not a dismissal. It's an invitation. Go is the invitation to be free of the bondage and the weight and the worry and the ridicule of other people, which only Jesus can offer. And we get that offer all the time in all kinds of different places to go. Whether it's through sex, alcohol, rock and roll, whether it's through career, whether it's through conquering folks, whether it's through whatever your desire is, go, be free. But we can only find the truth of that invitation in the person and work of Jesus. Your faith has healed you, Jesus says. This word faith, translated from the Greek pistis, is used elsewhere as pisteo. It means belief. Your faith has healed you. Your belief has healed you. Belief in, in what? Or rather, belief in who? Belief in this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. This belief, this faith, this pistis heals both immediately in the moment of need, but also eternally. That's something about the abundant and the eternal life that Jesus offers us simultaneously if we believe in him. Have you placed your faith, your belief in the person of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you believed in him? Today's scripture concludes with the phrase, immediately he received his sight, there at verse 52, and followed Jesus along the road. In closing, a, a lot of commentators see this conclusion of this section in Mark, and they just give Bartimaeus all the props in the world. They really commend him. And they commend him as, get this, the ideal disciple. I mean, go study commentaries. You'll find this phrase over and over again. Bartimaeus, the ideal disciple, the man who sees that Jesus is Lord, believes in him, throws away his earthly possessions to follow after him, and willfully, without request, Jesus didn't say, okay, come unto me and follow me. Jesus said, go, but Bartimaeus willfully follows Jesus. The ideal disciple, they say. And I read that, and I just... A lot of times I don't find my thoughts lining up with what I read in commentaries or in theology books. Or I understand what they're saying, but I think it's short-sighted. I think it's kind of a misguided uh, celebration. I mean, after all, the, the, the series that we're in, The Last Days of Jesus Christ, is approaching the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to look at it in depth over the weeks to come. But what we find is that Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, and with every step he draws closer and closer to his cross— And people abandon him. And at his cross, he dies, deserted, with no ideal disciples to be found. I understand it, but I think it's short-sighted. I think it's a misguided celebration. How How ideal can the disciple be who deserts his master? How ideal can the disciple be who forsakes his savior? You guys sensing that? Do you get that? But this, my friends, is the reality of the gospel. That there is no such thing as an ideal disciple. The good news, not of the celebrated disciples, not of the capable men and women, not of the smart people or the pretty people, the seemingly religious and obedient and commendable people who you just need to clean your act up and be like, that's not the story of the gospel. 
The gospel is the very good news of the crucified Lord who is not blind, who sees the depths of our wickedness, our vile thoughts, our evil actions, our inherent incapability, and our willful unwillingness to follow him to the place that only he goes, which is death for us. That's the news of the gospel. Our unwillingness to be as we were made to be, to do as we were made to do. And yet, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes has faith, puts their pistis in him. They will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you see him this morning? And further, do you see that in him, you can actually begin to see yourself? You can look at yourself securely in Christ, assured in Christ, entirely, completely, even, and especially the parts of our person that we don't project right? The edited out parts. We can begin to see ourselves safely and securely in Christ. Do you see that in him, you can show yourself to others. You can be seen, assured in Christ, confident in Christ. We can begin to let people in on all the things about us that plague us, that embarrass us, that give us shame, that we've been mocked and ridiculed for. Like Bartimaeus, we can let people begin to see those things. Do you see how he wants others in your relational world to see him through you? Jesus wants people in your relational world to see him through you. Not because you're great, not because you're beautiful, not because you're consistent, not because you're strong, none of those things, because he is, and he makes much out of weak vessels like us. Jesus wants people in your relational world to see him through you, and he wants all of this in and through a deep, meaningful, authentic, vulnerable, long-term, long-suffering relationship with you. Do you see him? Will you pray with me? Lord God, we know that our responsibility is not to see you in full, but rather respond to the reality that you have seen us in full, and yet you don't condemn us. You have seen us completely, and yet you have not judged us, criticized us, held us accountable even for our wrongdoing, but rather you went to the cross for our wrongdoing, the righteous for the unrighteous, suffering once for sins, being punished, the just for the unjust. Not to become an example for us to think that we can follow and fulfill, uh, but rather to give us freedom, give us liberation. Give us assurance that can only be found in you. That we would not look to ourselves, but look away from ourselves. And by looking away from ourselves, begin to find an identity outside of ourselves and the finite things that we try to measure our worth and our value, but rather that we would find ourselves in the only place that places immense value on us, that our society can't, that our accomplishments can't, namely in the life and death of you, Lord Jesus Christ. That that's where we can find our identity our value, that we can see you, we can see ourselves, we can begin to be seen by those around us, and that others, in fact, miraculously and oddly enough, can begin to see you through us. God, you are uh, mysterious, but we thank you that you are faithful to fulfill the things that you have began. We thank you for uh, this little time that we've had this morning. I pray that you would make these things profitable to myself, to the hearers, for our good, for your glory. 
in your name we pray. Amen.